You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. Welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is January 5th, 2023, 7.35 p.m. Pacific Time. Welcome to a new year. I thought we might talk about resilience and and grieving. <laughs> grieving or grieving? <laughs> and grieving. Grieving. Oh. Which, uh, seems to go to, uh, together together in my mind. If you're really good at losing things, you don't suffer that much the loss of them, and everything, of course, is lost eventually. Uh, and part of the process of resilience is the is the ability to begin again and where we get hung up is when we begin to cling to things that are already lost uh, wishing things to be different than they are one of the things about being in a human body of course is we grow these things it's not uh, it's not that we make up our minds uh, we're not going to do that anymore. It's actually we have created this this brain structure that includes this stuff. Um, I like the Robert Firestone description of of the process of grieving, um, and uh, I'm going to relay it in a Buddhist frame. You know, you have the capacity to sense something, the object that can be sensed when there's contact, the consciousness of the sensing experience arises. It's evaluated for urgency. Does it need immediate attention? Does it not matter whether you get to it? Uh, is there time to have a pleasant experience? Then it's compared to the perceptual database. And... <clears throat> If we find an entry in the in the perceptual database that matches close enough to the undifferentiated ultimate reality, it unfolds into conceptual reality. And then in the process of uh, remembering that experience, one of the aspects that also arises uh, beyond the intention for an action and the action that you might take is who would you share this experience with? Because we are herd animals we we we're meant to live in, in social groups and so what often happens in this process is that somebody comes to mind and you think uh, that that this would be something that you would tell them and if if you have them as an actual current relationship that you can contact the the process is quite pleasant usually or whatever the experience is uh, some people have an urgency to their communications. But if the, if the person is lost, or there's a disruption in the relationship, then when the thought goes to them, there's a little pop of sadness around that. <clears throat> um, because we're uh, relational beings, and because we grow memory in, in our wetware, uh, if we have a long and involved relationship with somebody, there's a lot of associations that can be made to that particular person. So when we lose somebody, it may not be just a small pop of sadness, it could be a huge wave of sadness. 
if you've had a committed relationship to a friend group or to an intimate partner, and it lasts for uh, a length of time, more and more of these memory entries that include the sharing aspect are formed. And then when that person isn't available, that pop of sadness could be this wave. And if it overwhelms the system, then we move into these really self-generated emotion, uh, emotional regulation patterns around the grieving process. It's usually if only this had happened and not that had happened. If I had said this and not that, if I had done this or not that, if that had happened and not this, then I wouldn't have lost them and I wouldn't be in this process of, of sadness around that. Um, really what we're meant to, use, to do is to, to use that energy of sadness that arises uh, when uh, somebody is lost to us or some activity is lost to us uh, as the energy to propel us into new connections so that we recognize that there's a loss, there's a pop of sadness, which is energy that then uh, we can use to connect uh, or replace uh, the lost object. Is that making sense? I know I'm using object uh, in a kind of object relations uh, frame. Um, <clears throat> we understand in, in Buddhism, of course, that everything is impermanent. Um, the five remembrances, I am of a nature to change. Um, hmm. I'm of a nature to grow old. There's nothing I can do to prevent growing old. I'm of a nature to get sick. There's nothing I can do to prevent becoming sick. I'm of a nature to die. Uh, to die. There's nothing I can do to prevent my own death. Uh, everyone I have, uh, everyone I love and everything I have is subject to change. There's uh, nothing I can do to prevent losing them. My... Uh, only true possessions are my actions. There's nothing I can do to escape the consequences of my actions. So this is the nature of the human condition. And so what we really need to do is get good at uh, losing things, losing people. Um, I read recently a study that said most people every two and a half years or so have a major disruption in their, their social circle. And so it's uh, that that's a just a natural process in it. Um, it used to be when I um, was growing up um, on the AM radio that we all listened to. All the pop songs were about love that lasted forever. Do you remember that? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, um, about the radio anymore because I don't have one in my car. Um, so how do you orientate yourself toward that that resilience, really, uh, as I like to think of it, is the ability to go all in, to really fully engage as hard as you can, knowing that it's going to be lost. Um, 
there's a, a poem in the a chat by Elizabeth Bishop, uh, One Art, the Art of Losing. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent, the art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing further, losing faster, places and names and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I own, two rivers, a continent, I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied, it's evident, the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it like disaster. Nice, thank you. So sometimes what can happen, uh, and this is t touching into the attachment uh, experience, is that when we're not good at forming these connections and um, they're difficult, uh, we sort of come out of a, most people who have difficulty with attachment have a lot of adverse childhood experiences and they come out of those experiences and there's a a freedom that sort of opens up in youth and that you have more agency to be of, uh, outside of that uh, uh, confining family system and, and you charge ahead to make it different than it was. And uh, because the conditioning carries with you, uh, we, and uh, we go into the, formation of relationships based on our conditioning and our understanding of what they might be like. <clears throat> and they don't go well. And, uh, and that that's repeated often enough, it, uh, it can accumulate a, a disappointment. And so what you notice in uh, the attachment from the attachment lens is that people who over and over again have difficulty establishing workable relationships, when they get into their mid-30s, the, the disappointment is so great that they become less and less willing to attempt another relationship. And so it isn't that they don't want the connection and they don't want uh, that intimate experience. They don't want to risk the disappointment of another failed relationship. And so they gradually begin to withdraw from engaging in those kinds of relationships um, and begin to form a way of being that doesn't include those kinds of uh, connections. <clears throat> so we have to find a way to be disappointed by uh, the, the nature of the human condition uh, and do that well enough that it allows us to continue to engage. 
in each moment. There's a pop of sadness that arises, and then we push into re-engaging. And that process of grieving, of using the sadness in a beneficial way uh, as energy to propel us into the next series of connections, knowing as we go in that it's going to be lost. That's the one of the things that uh, we talk about in, in Buddhist circles quite a bit. <clears throat> How do you adjust to that? We talk about uh, forming relationships. I sometimes uh, talk about that using Robin Dunbar's numbers. An A relationship is somebody that you see and take care of on a daily or every other day basis that you tell everything to. And when we mean, what we mean by tell everything to is that you give a complete and authentic expression of your experience of the present moment. A B relationship is somebody you see weekly or every other week and take care of and tell everything to. And then C's and D's are people that you encounter regularly, but you may not tell everything to. When you find somebody good, you really want to take care of the relationship because they're not so easy to find. And you want to do that knowing that it's going to be lost. But sometimes they go on for quite a long time. I have uh, a couple of friends that, well, actually more than a couple, that I met in my early 20s that I, I still have relationships to. So almost uh, 50 years of relating. Uh, it's a long time. I remember my, my grandmother on my mother's side, um, I said to her uh, in my early 20s, I want to live to be 100. And she said, well, that's all very nice, George, but you won't know anybody. And I said, what do you mean? You have lots of friends. And she said, oh, those people, I've only known them 10 years. I used to know people 70. There is that peace. And then there is the peace of people not staying so long. You know, if you find a good person, you you definitely want to engage and go in and support the relationship because they're so valuable to have. But at the same time, understand that everything is impermanent. Everything changes. People come and go. Houses come and go. Jobs come and go, situations come and go. So um, talking about resilience as this energy that allows you to be good at losing things and at the same time fully engaging things, each thing that comes along, each moment that comes along. And this isn't really something that is at all different than the way that it is. It isn't that we're describing this wild revolutionary idea. If you notice, every moment comes and goes. Have you? Is there a moment that you've experienced that hasn't done that? Not making sense. 
So that beneficial relationship to sadness, that little pop of sadness, sort of that ocean of sadness is converted into the energy that you need to open into the next experiences that are happening. But in an, if it becomes afflictive, then it is the thing that prevents you from doing it. That, that sense of disappointment that accumulates if it's not processed in a way that, that is useful, it becomes the, the barrier to really trying, to really reaching out. One of the things that we do with meditation is to examine our conditioning the way that we form the experience that we're having. Consciousness or the self-experience, the conscious self-experiences is really a small piece of it. When you examine it, the whole body-mind process unfolds and you're really in the self-experience witnessing what that is rather than that self-experience being the driver of anything. It's the audience of the play of you unfolding. And uh, so what we're attempting to examine in um, this exploration is the witness watching the, the way that, that we're conditioned unfolding in our intentions and actions so that we can consciously monitor them and uh, redirect them toward more skillful choices. And then if we're not mindful, of course, there's nobody watching and we just, un we just our conditioning just unfolds uh, in, in front of us. So, uh, a question in the chat, is the resilience in grief you're describing different from equanimity? Equanimity is the, the allowingness uh, of it. So if we look at equanimity uh, uh, on one side, and the lack of equanimity is craving, aversion, and unconsciousness on the other, uh, we hold the, the, the sadness experience, we hold the engagement experience with equanimity, or we could lose our equanimity and have the same experience and be aversive to it, not want it to be happening or craving. Craving is I usually describe as wanting it to be different than it is. And consciousness is not being able to be present for it. And then they can stack and multiply each other. You could not want it to be the way it is and want something else at the same time. You could not want it, want it to be different and be unconscious of that process uh, and it and it uh, driving the the reactions that you have to it one of the qualities of secure functioning is forgiveness easy forgiveness it is uh, the understanding this deep understanding of the nature of human condition human conditioning and how uh, reactive we can be based on that conditioning and in particularly in uh, close relationships uh, there's a, a reactivity that that can uh, when when it's not 
moderated cause a, a painful experience in the way that the other person uh, interprets it. We make our conceptual reality and we make our expression of that conceptual reality and then uh, somebody who's witnessing that makes their conceptual reality out of it. But because uh, each person's conditioning is different, what it means to each uh, person is different. So we always have to be careful about inquiring whether the intention of your expression is actually uh, received, or uh, a better way to put that might be, how is your expression and what you meant actually received by the other person and interpreted by the other person? without uh, clenching around the self-experience. You'll notice when big angry self arises or big wounded self arises or big fearful self arises, there's uh, a almost automatic need to defend that self-experience as if it were something tangible that could be hurt in that way. Um, <clears throat> this is what I think is going on. What do you think is going on is this stance rather than this is what's happening. When we collapse out of mentalizing, one of the teleological modes is that you interpret what's, what somebody else is, is doing something as a specific meaning, like, uh, why did you do this to me? I didn't do that to you. Oh, yes, you did. That's the non-mentalizing one. What do you mean I didn't do that? This is what happened. And this is your intention for what happened, not understanding that that's an experience that you can create based on your conditioning. It could be completely different one what the other person is doing. How do you help somebody then uh, see that, which would be something like, oh, why do you think that? Or uh, what happened that made you think that? Rather than locking up on and defending the self-experience. One of the things that Dan Brown used to stress is the the nature of karma in relationship to ethical behavior. That if you make a commitment to to live an ethical life, and in Buddhism for householders, it's the first five of the precepts. Undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm through killing. Undertake the practice of uh, refraining from causing harm by harsh speech. Undertake the practice of uh, refraining from causing harm through sexual conduct. Uh, undertaking the practice to refrain from causing harm through stealing and then undertaking the practice to refrain from causing harm through the use of uh, intoxicants. 
Thich Nhat Hanh extends that to consumption, harmful consumption. That when you live an ethical life and the things that happen to you uh, are different than actually what you had hoped would happen or what you wanted to happen, you interpret the karma as good karma, as the good outcome. Whereas we're often uh, relating to it as, is it what I wanted? I did this and I wanted that to happen and it didn't happen, something else happened. And so the something else that wasn't what I wanted to have happen is bad. Whereas if you live an ethical life, the things that then unfold uh, are thought to be good karma. And then there's a reorienting around if this is the good outcome, what does that mean? Some things are lost. As it said in the poem, everything is lost. Is that necessarily uh, bad, or can we open up to the to the this unfolding of experience. How's that sound? <clears throat> so here we are at a new year unfolding. Um, and the old year has gone. Um, from my perspective, last year was a very difficult year. It was hard to manage the, the the degree of losses that happened. There were there were substantial losses throughout the year, and I noticed in this uh, the the Christmas season uh, that uh, the the over the dominant feeling of around the holidays was a sense of sadness and loss. Partly because of the work that I do in uh, supporting different people's practice uh, and the the number of people that also were having uh, th that experience of loss, this wearing, and then the the actual circumstances of my own life. And uh, the busyness of life also, I think, is hard to just withdraw. I took the week off between Christmas and New Year's uh, and was in Los Angeles, which is the first time I think in 20 years that I've been not teaching a retreat <laughs> over the holidays <laughs> and was absolutely surprised at the, the depth of my tiredness. Uh, and, uh, so I was very appreciative of resting and how the resting changed uh, actually my whole experience of time. It took a few days of just not doing anything before my body actually began to settle and begin to re-energize. So that's the other piece of all of this. We live in this body and it, it has its, its, its qualities and it has its requirements to, to function well, and we need to 
see that. And one of the uh, things about aging is the the resilience of the body and the energy of the body changes. And usually uh, the more aged you get, it, it's not in the uptick side of things. <laughs> uh, the normal workload that for years I've been able to do, I can't do anymore. And there is a loss to that. Then uh, the scaling back so that I can accommodate the body and it's the way that it is now comparison to the way that it was. There's a joyfulness in this. Um, <clears throat> seeing uh, the people that matter to you and being uh, delighted in them, being able to delight in them, people seeing you and being able to delight in you. Each moment. So for 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 Christmas, I got myself uh, one of these bird feeders that has a camera in it. And it has an app. So you can watch birds from your computer. <laughs> it came in the in the in the mail today. And uh, I'm very excited to hook it up tomorrow. And uh, got a close look at the birds. We have um, mainly house finches uh, in, in Southern California. House finches are a, a brown and tan bird. The males have an orange uh, chest and, and forehead. When COVID came, <clears throat> The goldfinches came back. I've lived in, in, in this building for 25 years at least, and there were never goldfinches before COVID. The hummingbirds come, and we used to get the, the migratory hummingbirds in the summer from Mexico, but they don't come anymore. So it's just the local. ones. There are two main types. The uh, Anna and the Allen. They're named after the first name of the couple that originally registered them with the Audubon Society. The Allen uh, hummingbirds are these small, the smaller of the two, and they're they have a brown uh, color to them, and they're fiercely territorial. And we have I have one that has control of the whole outside. And he even flies up to me and informs me that it's his space, uh, which I find very entertaining. And those little moments animate the day, just the interaction to the world itself. And then there's this liveliness of being alive uh, that you can touch into, this energy of being alive that's there, this current. <clears throat> Having had such an 
uh, a challenging early life and the process of trying to dig myself out of that uh, that took up so much of the middle part of my life. Uh, I don't have a recollection uh, of a sense of the sacredness of, of this experience of uh, being human. And it really wasn't until, uh, until studying with Dan and uh, touching into the, the, the bond practices that he was teaching that that art opened for me. I, I, I recall listening to people talk about a sense of the, their experience of the sacredness of this human life. And I remember <clears throat> early on in, in my meditation practice, teacher is talking about the preciousness of this human incarnation, but I really didn't have much of a sense of that. It, it, it's, life has always been very hard in my experience. I mean, I, I do have fantastic privilege. I recognize that, and, and a lot of that is, you know, in some sense, winning the lottery of, of how I was born. But at the same time, it, it, there was a lot of penalty in it. Um, white man, affluent, but then I turned out to be gay. So a lot of the advantages that uh, you might have in that category were denied me uh, when I uh, came out. It was very different. <laughs> coming out of the 70s <laughs> that it is now. That uh, the New York experience where we, we all fled from our, the families that kicked us out and found uh, an accepting community was fantastic. But I didn't have the sense of it being sacred. But the opening of that and touching into that uh, sense of the wonder of being alive, I remember in uh, uh, <clears throat> the description of the, the chances of being born in this human life are like a, a sea turtle sticking its head up inside of a life ring in the middle of the ocean. That was hard for me to understand early. But I do have a sense of the liveliness of things now, and the sense of the sacredness of this, and the, the sense of the joyfulness in people who I can connect to and who I have a sense see me. And I know that this comes from a practice, this uh, being able to use the meditation uh, to recognize the conditioning that interferes with the way that I create the experience of this moment and being able to set that aside and coming into the this lively awareness. So how's that as a pep talk for the beginning of 2023. <laughs> uh, 
lively, loving, pursuing things that are meaningful, connecting. So why don't we do a little bit of practice? Um, some loving kindness maybe for self. You start with an easy person. Go ahead and take your meditation posture. So how did that go? I don't have any grief for sloth and torpor. Nice. <laughs> oh. Oh uh, yeah, I um, I always have a hard time with these, but I keep at it, <laughs> and um, yeah. So what happened is I first tried to visualize, and by the way, I still have a hard time figuring out if I'm a visualizer or an auditory person, or both, or if I switch back and forth. So I don't really know yet. Okay. Um, but I tried to visualize this friend I've known a long time as the person I'm, wherever we started out, I think we're giving easy, but easy person giving peace to. And, um, and then of course I drifted off in between, but then when we went to some other second round, it was, it switched when you said, may I be peaceful, uh -huh. it switched. And all of a sudden, I just out of the blue visualized this meditation teacher I've been working with, who's very kind and generous with his time. And I said, may I be peaceful, but I was thinking of him or, or yeah. And so it switched, but it was the only time I got that really kind of warm, you know, pity feeling is when I was thinking of him, but I was saying, may I be peaceful. And what about the view? The view meaning why? The view of loving kindness. Do you have a sense of that yet? Just some, just the feeling of warmth, but not, I don't know what you mean by a view. You mean you view the feeling or view the words or what? Well, if, if you, open your eyes and you look at the way that you've constructed conceptual reality, when the view of loving kindness is there, it looks a particular way. Oh, I didn't know that. So that, that, that's the idea. So you hold a mind state and then when if you're using visual, but if you hear a sound, it's filtered through the, the mind state and it, it appears differently. The, when you look at the body, when it's looking through that filter, the body is experienced in a different way. It's a perceptual shift. Yeah, yeah. Your, everything you view is with loving kindness. Right. Yeah, I don't know if I got there. Um, yeah, it's hard to tell because I get a little mind wandering and then I come back and I'm like, am I doing anything here worthwhile? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is emphatically yes. <laughs> And will be the fruits of my meditation. <laughs> Every time the mind asks that, which is called skeptical doubt, it's one of the hindrances uh, to doubt. say, yes. Yes, it's worth every second of 
meditating and not knowing what I'm doing. Right. Okay. Then I'll keep at it. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And I, I want to let others speak, but I want to go back to what you said at the end about um, this precious human life. Mm-hmm. But do if other people want to share first, because I don't want to take up all the time. Yeah. Go for it. What do you want to say? Or are you asking me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, basically, the precious human life, the... I've had a little bit of the same issues, like, well, it's been a hard life, you know, how how precious is it? But then I switch and like, yeah, it's really cool being alive. You can really engage with nature and you can have these happy feelings. And my question is around the samsar, um, samsaric, getting out of the wheel of samsara. So mm-hmm. I get confused when I think, Oh, I wouldn't want to get off the wheel. I, I, I've got more to experience. This precious human life could go on and on, and it'd be really cool to come back and have another precious human life. So I, I haven't reconciled, and I also want to ask you how you view that is um, kn- knowing that there's dukkha and there's suffering in a lifetime, and then wanting to get off the wheel completely versus there's so much wonderful things about being alive. I want to. I want to come back. Well, in in the Hinayana tradition, getting off the wheel is the whole goal, and mm. then in the Mahayana tradition, they added the Bodhisattva vow, where you vow to be reincarnated until all beings are enlightened. I don't half the time I think that it's just an excuse for bad behavior. <laughs> I don't understand it, yeah. Um what, the my my experience of this is the deeper the your practice gets, the more open you are to uh, helping other people see clearly what's happening. Uh, and the the uh, and the, it has a, a a profound impact to see people caught up in in delusion and suffering in a way that's unnecessary, really. And then there's a the bodhicitta is the, the word your heart opens and you want to help, but at the same time understand uh, really what that is 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 trying to clue them into the way it is not. Uh, something else. I don't know the answer really to to these questions. I mean, I've only heard that if you want to come back for another wife, or if you want to get off the wheel and not come back, either way, you're going to come back because you have a craving for it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you want it. <laughs> I don't right. want to come back. I do want to come back. Forget it. You're well, going to yeah. You know, in the Theravada map, the first uh, is stream entry. It's a four-stage thing. So then you, you're reincarnated seven times. Then the second path is a once-returner, where you're reincarnated one more time. The third path is a non-returner. So you, you, you're not reincarnated. The fourth is you're not reincarnated. That's why you, would ha- you make a vow, and then you have to do something that would cause a reincarnation to happen if you get to that level. That's different than... Um... Bodhisattva vow. Yeah. 
So that that's essentially the bodhisattva path. Mm. You engage in something that would cause the reincarnation, even though you're enlightened past the place where you would naturally be reincarnated. Mm. Stacy. Hey George, thanks. Um, uh-huh. When you're setting up the loving kindness meditation, you use a phrase, um, may I be peaceful. And I think you're saying the name of a teacher that makes that suggestion. And I can't, I've been listening for a few months now and I cannot for the life of me decipher who you're uh, naming. Yeah, can you spell that? In the chat. Thank you. Thanks so much. If you Google him, he'll come up. Yeah, I would, but I just can't figure out who what you're saying. <laughs> Thank you. Ash? They shouldn't give me this many buttons. It's quite a responsibility. <laughs> um, I was I was actually I was talking to to, to Rose uh, Bostick today uh-huh. um, about um, the way I've um, experienced view in the way like as you've instructed in the last you know month or so that I've been coming in, and um, one thing that I've noticed that's different about it and I've also had a similar experience with um some guided IPF was um that I'm not uh, you know that once once this like view is being generated it's coherent through the in spaces um there seems to be like a physical like rising energy like and I'm kind of turning into you know just focusing on like that feel out experience uh-huh. And it's like uh, it's like a rising in the chest, and like there's like you know the posture wants to even raise the chin, and uh-huh. just staying with that, it seems like there's much less scrutiny than all these dichotomies of inner experience that I've challenged myself uh, uh, with analysis over and over again. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't know if that's at all the product that I should be looking for, or if you have any it's, ideas on that. It sounds like PT. Is that what you're describing? Possibly, but it's a very, um, it's not like the active wild PT that I'm used to. Right. Um, uh, it or could, it could yeah, be I, bliss. I never thought about it as PT. It could be bliss energy. Hmm. I was just sort of, um, with the, the IPF guidance I had, there was an experience of uh, a settling and a support on the physical like just like on the like on the surface of my body and i sort of went into like just noting with that and uh-huh. i don't i didn't note that as pt either it it feels like a pretty like a rigid not like a flowing experience um no i don't either uh but let's talk about it more as cool. you practice and see w- whether we get some more data points. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, everybody. Um, we have a new level one starting on Saturday in the new format, which is four half days instead of three day longs. And then in February, we have another level two starting. Um, 
for the retreat in Utrecht in June. That seems to be everything that's coming up. We're going to do a, a Central European time level one um, in April. So take a look at that uh, if you're interested in that stuff. I offer this uh, uh, teaching freely, but I uh, or on a Donna basis, and I do hope that you'll make a donation and help support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Really appreciate your practice and uh, hope to see you soon on the path. Bye now.